Welcome to The Trainer's Tribe, a podcast for group fitness business owners who want a reliable business that gives them the freedom and impact they desire. My name is Kyle Wood, and I'm joined by Dale Sidebottom. We're the first people to tell you that working harder or working longer is not necessary. We've both built successful boot camps and created profitable online businesses, which has given us the lifestyles that we love. How do you build a fitness business that's both profitable and that you love working on? That's why we created this podcast. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey guys, it's Kyle here. Welcome to the Trainers Tribe. On today's episode, I have Jonathan Fields with me. Uh, Jonathan is a dad and husband. That's the way he likes to be introduced. He's also a yogi. He's the founder of The Good Life Project, which is a community, it's a podcast, and in some ways it's kind of a school. He's interviewed some of your favorite TED speakers like Brene Brown, Sir Ken Robinson, Elizabeth Gilbert, and Scott Dinsmore, plus authors and other interesting people like Gretchen Rubin, Dan Pink, and Simon Sinek. He joins me here today on uh, the eve, it's kind of getting to the eve of your, your book launch, his new book called Good Life Project. Tagline, Jonathan? Oh, for the book? Yeah. Oh, it's How to Live a Good Life, Soulful Stories, Surprising Science, and Practical Wisdom. There we go. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks. Good to be hanging out with sweet baby Kyle. <laughs> no, you, can't, you can't use that. You can't use that here. People don't know that. <laughs> oh, I can't uh, use it? Oh, man. I just, I just totally busted you. It's like, the, it's like the Good Life Project secret name. That's all right. It's a spy name. All right. Mm-hmm. We'll do it over with uh, <laughs> a Mr. Professor Kyle Wood. So I was, uh, <laughs> I was, this is going to be a very unserious interview. I can, I can already feel it. So I was, I was thinking about the first time that I saw you live because I was trying to think of, well, I remember where we met, but I was trying to think of the first time I saw you live, which was at World Domination Summit 2014. And did they had those academies that year? That was the first year they did the academy. So it was like you could go see these right. extra speakers, and so you were doing a speakers speech on the revolution, like how to turn your business into a revolution. And I remember sitting there, and you came out on stage, and I was like, "This guy is the best!" <laughs> like, like instantly your street cred. And it was because you came out. Like, so here you are. I'd read about you know. I'd been listening. I'd been watching at the moment. You at that time you had the TV show. So you were doing like the right. face-to-face interviews and I, I think I probably found you through Scott's website like a, when he was on your show and then I was like, oh man, he's yep. interviewed Brene and all these other people and yeah, knew you were a successful author and speaker and businessman, you know, you'd built multiple businesses and then you walk out on stage and you're wearing like jeans, like an old worn t-shirt, like to give a speech and talk to like 400 people. <laughs> and just like super casually dressing and just like, Hey guys. Like, <laughs> and I was like, this guy is amazing. <laughs> so, you know, you know, it's funny. I used to take heat because back in the day, you know, I also, I taught yoga and, uh-huh. uh, I used to teach yoga wearing ripped up jeans and an old t-shirt and bare feet. So I guess it hasn't really changed a whole lot. It's kind of like, maybe that's my brand, which is just kind of me. I mean, it's like, you know, you get what you get. Uh-huh. Well, I really like that, especially coming from Melbourne, which can have more of that New York style of dressing, which is like people tend to dress quite formally. And so it was really refreshing to see someone 
dressing clothes that they were comfortable in, you know, rather than wearing, which is not to say some people aren't comfortable in formal clothes, but it was clear you were comfortable on stage and yeah, that was really cool. Which awesome. Yeah. That was fun. Actually. That, yeah. I remember that talk. I, rem- I remember the theater, but I just remember it being a really good vibe in the room that day also. Mm-hmm. People were really excited. Well, you're going to teach them how to turn their business into a revolution, so. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Which would have also probably made it a little bit weird if I showed up in like a suit and tie because they're like, that's yeah, not that's very true. revolutionary, is it? Uh-huh. You are really good at setting bold sort of statements for yourself, like with your, with your products and I was just thinking about, and with your book, which we'll talk about a bit more later, but like how to live a good life. And I know you touch on that. I've been reading it in the book. But I thought it would be fun because our audience is mostly trainers. You originally studied law. Was that straight out of school then? No, I took a little bit of time off. I actually, actually out of undergrad, I I had sold my first tiny little business in college and I had a little bit of walking around uh-huh. money. So I took an airplane from New York to Cairns, Australia. I don't really? Even, I don't know if you know this story, actually. <laughs> no. It was me and a backpack, and I flew into Cairns. And this was back when Cairns was like this sleepy little backpacker town. And the Esplanade uh-huh. was just like a couple of hostels and a whole bunch of international people just kind of like chilling. And now, like, you know, it's this built-up resort town. And my goal was just to spend some time diving. So, you know, like, I was there for a little while. We went out on the reef and just slept on a boat for a while. And then worked my way down the coast till I hit Sydney. And then after about three months, went back home. Then I spent about a, I think it was about a year doing outside sales, which I was terrible at. <laughs> and literally had to knock on doors of businesses and try and sell them long distance uh. telephone service. <laughs> then I ended up going back to law school. So was, I guess it was about a year, year and a half between the two. Wow. Okay. So what did you originally study at college? Political marketing and no, it wasn't business. It was political science was my major, which was also kind of the major that most people end up doing when they can't figure out what else to do. <laughs> so okay, I was not yeah. all that focused, and and truth told, I didn't actually attend class all that much when I was in college. I was <laughs> I was more focused. I was a DJ, and I and I built sort of like a DJ and sound That's and lighting funny. company when I was uh, uh-huh. in college, and I spent most of my time actually just building the business. I wow. kind of have entrepreneurship wired into me a little bit and and a love of social dynamics and crowds and music so it all came together with that so uh so I got yeah. I, I got curious when I got out of college like I wanted to actually really test myself from an intellectual standpoint and really challenge myself and that was a lot of what was behind law school actually uh, okay, because that's like the hard thing you do to challenge yourself, especially coming from New York, it sounds like. Yeah, the three-year expensive hard thing to do. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I kind of figured even if I didn't end up practicing, which I did, but I kind of figured even if I didn't, it would just give me a great set of skills no matter mm-hmm. what I ended up doing. So, And, and it did. I mean, I actually I don't, regret, I don't regret going to law school. I don't regret practicing for, you know, the four or five years I had practiced either. It was... Give me some really great abilities and skills. So four or five years into practicing, uh, you took a bit of a change in direction? Yeah. I kind of, my body kind of rejected my career, actually. You know, crazy amounts of stress, barely any sleep, almost no, actually not almost no, no exercise, almost no movement, 
terrible, terrible nutrition. And this is for coming from a kid who spent the first 18 years of his life training as a competitive gymnast. So I like, (laughs) I love movement. I love, like I'm fascinated by mind body connection, somatics and, you know, functional anatomy and kinesiology and biomechanics. Like um, that, I geek out on that. And, um, and I completely walked away from any interest in that whatsoever. Yeah. So there came a time where essentially I was in such horrible shape. My immune system shut down and had this massive infection in the middle of my body, ate a hole through my intestines and sent me into emergency surgery. And, uh, it was a wake up call, you know, and when that Mm. happens, you kind of have to reassess what's important in life. And, um, took me another, from what I remember, six to nine months, maybe a little bit longer to really make my plan to leave. But yeah, I knew that I was headed out of the law because it just wasn't a career that was, it felt right for me. And I also knew Mm -hmm. that I loved health, fitness, wellness, movement, and entrepreneurship. So I, my job went from making six figures as a lawyer to making 12 bucks an hour as a personal trainer. uh, (laughs) That was a blow to my ego as much as my bank account. At the same time, I was actually, I was really happy just to be getting paid anything to learn a new industry. You know, that's kind of the way I looked at it. I was like, look, this is my education. And I very likely could have talked my way into a management position instead of, you know, starting as a, you know, sort of a newbie personal trainer. But I just, I really wanted to understand the dynamic. I wanted to understand what happened on the, the most intimate level of service, like what went well, what wasn't going well. Where were the amazing things, you know, between the trainer and the client and where were the breakdowns so that I could figure out how to build a better mousetrap. So I I, work, I ended up working for someone else in uh, this really high-end exclusive private training facility in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Then after about six months, I kind of figured out what was going on and what was working and what was not. And I saw also, I don't have to explain it to you, like there's pretty high level of dysfunction in the industry. Yeah, yeah. And on pretty much all levels, you know, on the business level, on the service level. And mm. that's not that's not to slam like the people in any way or the trainers. It's just not. there's there's a lot of the systems and the business models that have been built around that that are just not all that they kind of do a disservice to like what, you know, it's really about. And so um I decided to start my own facility. And the idea was basically we're going to do everything different. And we did. So I started a training facility. And it was sort of, you know, like really like a higher end, more exclusive training facility. And we started, we kind of went gangbusters from the beginning. We were on the one side, we had a 40,000 square foot health club. On the other side, we had a 25,000 square foot club. And within, I think within about a year, year and a half, we were doing more personal service revenue in a month than the average health club in the country was doing in a year. Um, Wow. Yeah. And it was all because we weren't like, I think it was because I didn't come from the industry. So I came in with fresh Mm -hmm. eyes and I really came in not just assuming that the model that everyone was using was the model Mm -hmm. that I had to use, but just kind of looking at totally fresh and saying, what would I do if I built this from the ground up, both from the business side and also from the service side, you know, so we changed Mm -hmm. so many things. So we took off pretty quickly. So Getting specific, what were some of the key things you tried to do different than what yeah, you saw well, people doing? Num- number one, you know, it was all based on being really personal and delight-driven and outcome-driven. 
So I couldn't care less about re-upping people for packages. You know, to me, it was like, let's do a detailed assessment when somebody comes in. Let's set aggressive but realistic outcomes. And then let's do what we need to do to actually deliver on the promise of those. So rather than, you know, like trying to sell somebody a 10-session package and then, you know, like your next most important goal is making sure they re-up, which I think is a joke, you know, why don't we actually yeah. – really listen to them maybe for the first time anyone's listened to them really understand what their life is about what you know like don't just ask them what they want like why they're here but actually really like ask them why five times deep so you really understand the deeper psychology of what's motivating them so you can understand Uh how to you know like how to tap into their own intrinsic motivation and instead of trying to like do everything you can to make them reliant on you and and keep them coming back just try and deliver an astonishing experience and try and actually create the outcomes, the results that they were looking to get as quickly as safety allows. And what I found was that we were able to do that. And when you do that, you don't have to worry about selling like packages because people just line up to get more of you and they can't shut up about what you're doing. They just start telling everybody because it's so different than anything they've experienced anywhere else. The other Mm -hmm. thing that I did was instead of opening a big facility, I realized that most health clubs, most big boxes are terrifying to your average person. They're super impersonal. You know, that's why the the attrition rates are so high and they have been Mm -hmm. for 30 years now. I haven't looked at an URSA annual report in a couple of years now, but I remember the stats were always pretty consistent. Something like 80 to 85% of adults in the U.S. at least won't join or stay a member of a health club. No yeah. matter how many billions have been thrown at that number, it hasn't changed. So I realized yeah. that part of the solution was it had to be small footprint, really intimate, hands-on and personal so that people develop a relationship. And even back then, I realized that it was important to build community. Because Mm -hmm. people will leave a business, it's much harder to leave a community, you know? So if you deliver on the promise of community, you know, it's like cheers, you know, I don't know, I don't know if you guys got the, like, got that. Yeah. Uh Okay. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like people come because they want to hang out with their people, you know, that's where their community, they feel like they belong there. Mm -hmm. And that was really important too, was to create that sense of community. And we did it really beautifully. And then on the pure business side, we totally shook things up also. There's something in the U.S. which was just starting then called Easy Pass, and I don't. You probably have some version of it there, if not Easy Pass too. It's like the little thing you put on your car, so it's just like it's a replenishment account. So basically, we created Easy Fit, which was a replenishment ap- account for personal service fitness. So you would come in, we would figure out your protocol, you would commit to it. It's like you know what. My commitment is to come twice a week, you know, and on every month it's going to average to about this. And we created these replenishment accounts that worked the same way that EasyPass worked, where once they hit a certain uh, base level, their account would automatically replenish. And yeah. also they would expire after a certain amount of time also. But, you know, we were, we were super transparent about that yeah. and aggressive about letting people know. Tried to really change the psychology of a lot of what happens on the business side too. But fundamentally, it was just like, you know what? Let's just delight the living daylights out of people and actually deliver on the promise rather than Uh um, just try and make them reliant and do everything we can to keep them buying more services for as long as we can. I feel like my gym does something similar to that. The one I go to as a client, yeah, certainly is very different to what goes on in the rest of the industry. 
So you mentioned one thing early on in sort of finding out what's important to a client, and that was the why five times deep. Yeah. So w- what do you mean when you say that? So somebody comes in, and like, what do we know is you know ninety percent of all people? What's the the big thing that they want? You know, when somebody comes to hire a trainer, well, weight loss. Yeah, yeah. they want to lose weight. They want to be skinnier. Right. Mm-hmm. Which so you already know that's the first answer. Right, and of yeah. course, like every once in a while, there's other stuff, but but that's the big reason that people come, right? So then most people are like, okay, so you want to lose weight, and then the next question is, well, like how much weight do you want to lose, and you know, so you just start to go from there, You're rather than saying, oh, that's really interesting. Tell me about what's you know what's making you, what's sort of like fueling this. You know, why do you want to lose? Why do you want to lose twenty pounds? You know, and so mm-hmm. it'd be like, well, you know, I just don't feel good in my, you know in my jeans, like, you know, my suit's gotten kind of tight, you know, and you'd be like, yeah, I totally get that. You know, it's, um, you know, those things can be distressing. Like what's really important to you? Like, why does it matter to you to not feel that way in your clothes? And then they'll be like, you know, cause I'm, uh, I'm at a point in my life where, you know, I'm kind of struggling and I'm having trouble with relationships. And I feel like, you know, part of it is that, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm presenting as unfit and unappealing. And you're like, yeah, I totally get that. You know, it's understandable, you know, and that can be certainly a struggle that a lot of people have, you know. And so I'm I'm just, I'm curious, like, what's, you know, like, why is it so important to you to find that relationship at, at this moment in your life? So, you know, you get mm-hmm. there and eventually the reason, you know, you'll get to a point, you know, where you'll get, you'll feel it, you know, somebody, you'll, you'll feel this just, opening of emotion and you're like bam Mm -hmm. that's it and the thing is that if you don't get to that place if you're just like so so why are you here and someone's like i want to lose 20 pounds you're like okay so 20 pounds we divide that over 10 weeks that's two pounds a week and here's the protocol and here's nutrition right we all know what's going to happen you know like 18 days into that they're gone and even if they're gone they're going from maximal effort down to like okay i'm going to do the minimum i need to do Rather, because you've never actually tapped into like the deeper criteria, like the deep um, emotional reason for them to actually sustain behavior and sustain action, mm-hmm. you know. And if you tap into that, it gives them something to continually revisit and to draw upon to create, you know, more of an intrinsic source of motivation rather than just pure accountability because they've paid to to be with you, you know, like twice a week or whatever yeah. it is, which is important. You know, accountability matters and structure matters. But the more you can get it coming from the inside out, in my mind, you know, the more you're going to be able to help somebody actually continue on and sustain or, you know, like deepen into the benefits and the results potentially for years. You know, like you may see them five mm-hmm. years down the road and you'd be like, wow, you know, we ha- I haven't mm-hmm. seen you in six months and you – you look like you're doing great. You know, to me, it's never about how long can I keep a client or it wasn't, you know, this is quite a number of years ago now, but it was about how can I serve them on a level they've never been served before. And if I do that effectively, they're going to market, you know, like for me, like I could never market for myself. Like they will go and evangelize and bring in however many people I need, you know, they'll, they'll help my practice be waitlisted in relatively short order. Yeah. You know, so we grew, we opened from like a cold start with a facility, you know, and within like a a matter of months, you know, we had a full faculty of trainers that we employed full time, 
you know, to the extent where you're like, if I would, there were days where, and I was training also, and there were days where, and you know this deal, and I'm sure a lot of people listening or watching know this deal, you know, somebody doesn't, somebody calls in sick, and I would find myself training from 6 a.m., like I'd have my clients, and then I'd have clients <laughs> from two other trainers, you know, 6 a.m. until 10 p.m. at night, and I would go home like mm -hmm. completely empty, but that's what you do, but uh -huh. yeah, so, and it was, you know, we marketed well, but it was fundamentally based on just like, an astonishing level of service and delight. Mm -hmm. Especially, um, I know you mentioned the long days as an introvert. Did you, like, I, I would just be, I'd get to the weekends and I couldn't crash. leave the house. <laughs> yeah, to I totally yeah, crash. Because I just, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And of course, like the weekends were when a lot of people wanted to come in, but I would very often take weekends off just because, or I would take days off during the week. Just because mm -hmm. I completely needed to, you know, I needed to refuel. I mean, also over uh -huh. time, you get to be selective about who you work with, you know? Yeah, yeah. We got, once you've got a few people working with you. Yeah. Yeah. When In finding people, how did you find other trainers and people? What did you look for in them, people who you were adding to your team? It's probably a blend of two things, or probably more than two things. Um, one, I wanted genuinely kind people. You know, like kind and compassionate people who really cared about others. Mm -hmm. That was really important because I saw, again, like in the industry, I, I just wasn't getting a lot of that vibe. So I wanted kind and compassionate people. Then most of the people that we actually hired had had actual degrees in either okay. ex-phys or training or something like that. So we wanted to also – part of what we were trying to do is raise the bar in terms of the education mm -hmm of our staff. So most people had some sort of degree in exercise science as well. I was one of the weirdo aberrations, but I was never <laughs> really supposed to be on the floor all that much. It just kind of happened. Yeah. So, you know, like definitely really strong education, kindness, compassion, and also just a certain energy, like a certain like playfulness and fun as you know, like we've known each other for a couple of years now. There's, mm -hmm. A lot of what I try to do when I build culture and, you know, if I'm building a company, part of my, what I'm responsible for creating is the culture within that company. And, you know, that comes from the top down. And so it's important that it's also we get the job done, but at the same time we have fun doing it. So I wanted people that were uh, kind of light and willing to get goofy. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So there was lots of contact then between you and, and them. And your trainers and oh yeah, with that part yeah, that part as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. You actually already touched on a few things I was going to talk about, but <laughs> I think I think it'd be cool to talk about your book. Well, well, I was going to talk, ask you about. Well, we'll talk we'll talk about it. yeah. So you, I got a copy off you while I was over in New York. Thank you. You did. We we yeah, snuck about, you an advance copy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I thought it'd probably go into a few people, but <laughs> everyone was like, "How did you kill one?" Yeah, it's it's been awesome. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the three buckets, and then I thought we'd kind of tie that back a little bit to to group fitness. Yeah, sure. I mean, so for you know, since 2012. Well, I mean, for probably you know, like a, a really long time now, I've been on a bit of a hunt to try and figure out what it means to live a good life. You know, it's part of what brought me back to fitness and entrepreneurship and then yoga after that. And then Good Life Project started at the beginning of 2012, so close to five years with that now. I wanted to – I was looking for patterns. I was like, okay, so 
having spent a lot of years working with people who are really looking to live their best lives and now having spent a lot of years sitting down and having the opportunity to learn from some of the most incredible and accomplished people in the world in across almost every spectrum of field. Yeah. Um, what are the yeah. big patterns that I've seen, you know, and you, you have a chance to sit down with guys like Ken Robinson, who, you know, had polio when he was four and grew up in post-war Liverpool to Brene Brown to Milton Glaser, who's the most iconic living designer, you know, you have like the data uh -huh. set becomes really vast, but you start to see common patterns across everyone. And I started to see this really strong emphasis on people, how people contribute to the world, how people build relationships, and how people take care of them themselves. So, mm -hmm. and I said, you know, like, there's a really simple model here. So if you think of life as three buckets, you know, you've got your vitality bucket, and that's basically the state of your mind and body. You've got your connection bucket, that's, a, that's cultivating relationships, and you've got your contribution bucket. And that's how you're bringing your gifts, your strengths to the world. Are you contributing in a meaningful way to your life and to the life of others? And if you look at that and say, okay, that's basically my life is made up of those three buckets. And if I want to live a good life, what it means is basically I want to make those buckets as full as I can possibly make them. So my job then every day is to take a quick check on how full those three buckets are and then do a little something every day to try and fill them up and keep them as full as I can. Because if I, if I don't keep them, if I don't keep filling them, eventually they all just run empty. So, you know, that was the idea behind the Good Buckets was to create a model that was just super simple, almost deceptively simple. You know, like almost like it's just so easy. People look at it like, well, that couldn't be powerful at all. But that's mm -hmm. the beauty of it. Because what I found, and you've mm -hmm. probably seen this in the fitness world, right, is that if you start yeah. to make it more complicated or too complex, even if it's valid, people won't do it. You know, so yeah. the idea is how can we actually deliver in a way where the instruction, the model, the basic idea is so simple, people don't have to work to understand it. And then that creates the bandwidth so that whatever effort they have available to them, you know, to actually do something, they can put into actually taking action on the idea. So that's what the idea behind, yeah, that's kind of where the buckets came from, the idea behind it. And it's like real simple, like your best life happens when your connection bucket, your contribution bucket, and your vitality bucket are brimming over. It is such a simple concept to share with other people as well. I was just looking over, over to the side. You might have seen me glancing because I've got it on my, I've got a whiteboard here. And I did a little, um, little Facebook Live to trainers the other day showing them the different buckets. Because I see for us as, as trainers, two big areas we can help our clients in is that vitality and that connection bucket. Yeah. And I think often we think about sort of vitality is that, yeah, that health, even with vitality though, we, we tend to focus just on the physical body rather than the full scope. It's not just, <laughs> you can be depressed and have a great body. Or you can be struggling with depression and have a great body. You know, you like if the mind is not there as well, that's going to cause you troubles. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And that's why I also, I talk about state of mind and state of body. I don't talk about them as, <laughs> as two different things, the same thing. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. really closely intertwined. You know, if your body is in pain, really good chance that at some point it's going to trickle up into your mindset. And if your state of mind is in pain, I mean, 
if you're in a place of really deep depression, you know, you may start out with a strong, muscular, fit, confident body, but, you know, it can be really hard to maintain that because it has an effect on your physical health and your, your willingness to actually do the things that would keep you physically healthy. Mm -hmm. And then it trickles down into physical pain, you know, psychological pain given enough time will, will almost always manifest in physical pain or physical disability and illness or disease. So mm -hmm. it's largely just a matter of time. So there's a total cycle. But yeah, I think most people, like when you think about, okay, I'm going to be a trainer, I'm, I'm going to be in the fitness world. Most people are thinking about, okay, my job is to help people fill that vitality bucket. Like that's what I'm all about. But I think what you were getting at earlier is that Yes, that's definitely probably a lot of it, but part of what your job is and part of what you can make it if you want it is to also help fill the connection bucket. You know, if you're somebody who your client sees once, twice, three times a week, maybe you're on boot camp or something like that and people are showing up, you know, like every day or three or four or five times a week, you have this amazing ability to build a relationship between you and your clients and create a safe container for your clients to build relationships between each other. And that creates, mm -hmm. that creates this deep sense of connection and belonging. And that is like a profound game changer in people's lives, especially these days, because a lot of people don't feel that. Um, a lot of people walking around feeling like I can't find my people. Like I don't have that sense of belonging. And if you can create that either, you know, on an individual level or, or on a small group or a community level, it's really, really, really powerful. Yeah, I know you and your team are, are awesome at creating that that container. And I'd like to ask you a bit more about that, but just sharing my experience of shortly after I saw you speak on stage at WDS, I came, you ran camp. And so I flew across the country to, to go to this thing in New York. <laughs> and I very much had that experience that, I, that it seems like most people who go to camp have were just like, I didn't know anyone. You know, I was just like, rocking up like <laughs> you know a stranger drove me from the airport like this person i met once at the station i met her like one time before and instantly like even though you guys were, you know the, the team was still setting up there was yeah a feeling of safety and like kind of of being home and you know even though you're bunking in with 10 other guys you know you're sleeping in the same they're still like there's still a you feel safe and you feel safe leaving your stuff there and that weekend was just forever changed the trajectory of, of my life. Like I was thinking about it before. I was thinking it's kind of like I'd been walking along this corridor and there was a dead end and I was like looking for the door mm. <laughs> to like keep going. And then I went to camp and it was like suddenly the door opened. And then also I noticed a big sign that said, here's, you know, here's the door handle. <laughs> but it wasn't, it was one of those cases of like connecting the dots afterwards and it wasn't, until I went there that it just opened my mind to a different way of, of just showing up, especially around like how I could align my personal values with, with something that I create like a business, like yeah. that had just never connected for me before. It always been like, you know, you have your business self and you have your personal self and you separate them. But, but yeah, big part of me being able to make that realization was the fact that it was such a safe space honest conversations with people and it sounds like you were able to create that at your your pt studio and then i know we would keep talking about this yoga studio <laughs> i don't know double whammy you here could you tell us really quickly about 
because the about opening Sonic and then uh, or just like that uh, what Sonic Yoga was sure. and then and then tell us about creating containers. Yeah, so I mean, we you know after about two and a half years with the ET place, we're doing well. And but I was kind of focused on new projects and new ideas. Um, and so I ended up selling out my interest in the company to a group of investors, and took a little bit of time off. And then I was getting really curious and interested in yoga, just on a personal level. And then I started looking around New York City, and I was like, huh. You know, there are a handful of great studios here. And this is before yoga was all over the place, by the way. We're talking about 2001. So, you know, this is this mm-hmm. was literally like before it hit tipped. The practice is really powerful, but there's also there's a lot of stuff that makes people, pushes people away from it. There are a lot of barriers. I was like, mm. wouldn't it be cool to actually open a place that preserved all the power of the practice, but removed as many of the barriers to participation as possible? And that was the idea behind the yoga center. I ended up opening up Sonic Yoga was that we tried to keep all the stuff that made it amazing in, but at least for the early days, strip out a whole bunch of the stuff that pushed people away. So if you're average, you know, if a 50-year-old unfit, unflexible dude who worked a professional career came into your average yoga studio back then in New York City, they would be terrified. You know, because the first thing you get sort of like hit with a wall of incense and then you're told to take your shoes off and then you're told to put on clothes that aren't too floppy that conform to your body. So like they don't fold down when you, you when you're inverted or whatever it is. And then you walk into a room that is filled with a lot of people who are probably, you know, have already had a practice for a while and you feel mm-hmm. completely inadequate. And this wasn't like designed to try and make people feel bad. It's just, it was the sort of the nature of the early culture of it. It was great for people who were part of the community already. But for a lot of people who weren't, especially the people who needed it most, it was somewhat terrifying. So we really wanted to change the culture and again, create safety and make it as inviting mm-hmm. as really possible. So we started, we started, I mean, right down to the name of the place. So everybody, you know, most yoga studios were like, had some sort of Sanskrit word or phrase that was the name. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. we, we need to actually like even name it something that just sounds like fun and poppy, you know, and that people uh-huh. would hear also and remember. So we called it Sonic Yoga. And again, like the, it was so different and it tapped into a need so fiercely that even though we literally opened weeks after 9-11 in New York City, we grew into a, a pretty flourishing community and, and venture pretty quickly. Because, I mean, well, one is that retention, but then that that creating safety. Yeah, I think we could, we're just around that. really good at creating community. You know, we started training our teachers from the very beginning because... Again, I was looking around and I was looking for well-trained teachers who also were just kind and generous and open and and I wasn't finding what I wanted, especially coming from you know by then I had actually gotten a whole bunch of different certifications in the health and fitness world and also gone back and studied for it and taken my American College of Sports Medicine HFI certification, which is really hard to get. Mm-hmm. So I was very aware of the ACSM guidelines for, um, you know, like for sports and for movement. And what I saw was that a lot of yoga actually was um, offering contraindicated movements. And that freaked me out. So part of what we I wanted to do was, was train up a new set of teachers who understood sort of subtle body anatomy from yoga, but also we trained them in modern, like ACSM style anatomy and functional anatomy and movement and stuff like that so that 
they really understood modern movement ideas and what's safe and what's not safe. So part of what we did also was really focus on on growing our own teachers from from the very first day. Mm-hmm. I think I guess another benefit of yoga is that it has that that mindfulness built into it as well. Yeah, definitely. And also, like yoga, I mean, the idea is, well, it's not nearly, it's not really so much built into the idea of a fitness or a training center. The idea of a yoga studio is very much, it's a community. I mean, there's a word kula, Mm. which translates literally to, you know, like to community. And so it's an integral part of of yoga because yoga was about, it's about developing human potential. And part of the development of human potential is the teacher, the teaching and the community. And mm-hmm. so the community always had, you know, it played a big part. It was a, it was a, a, it played a central role in that process. Whereas the development of human potential is not necessarily a stated outcome in the fitness world. Mm-hmm. So do you find once you, cause a lot of the trainers into this do run group stuff. So do you find once you create that container that the community just happens like it's more about creating the space than actually being like hey we're gonna have this like barbecue on this community barbecue we're gonna do yeah i mean like these activities and stuff like that sometimes yes sometimes no i think what creating the container is part of it but what's also really really important is that you share what you believe is important so Mm. you know like make very clear what your values are so crossfit is legendary for you know building really strong community within the boxes Right. Yeah. And part of the reason is because, you know, you kind of like CrossFit has a very well-defined ethos. They have like a set of values and beliefs and they also Mm -hmm. have their own special language, which is built around that ethos. Yeah. You know, so and and then they have like a well-defined activity like you. you, So people are drawn because they want to share in specific types of activities that for some reason they're just drawn to. You know, they they want to do those activities with people who see the world like them. Or at least, you know, like have this sort of like a shared value set. And they're all aspiring towards something similar, which is, you know, their own personal best, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the other thing that always jumps out at me, because CrossFit's like sort of the thing is be good at everything. <laughs> so, so it's that they will rally around that as well. Like this is the ultimate way to train. Yeah. And I mean, like CrossFit, the, you know, like the bond within a community, you know, like within a box very often, probably the bigger yeah. problem that they have is not getting people to show up. It's like actually stopping people from showing up too much. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, very much. Okay. I'm conscious of your time. So I wanted to, is there anything you'd like to share with uh, the listeners before we wrap up? Nothing major, just, you know, you know what, maybe there is. So, cause I've been in this space, you know, and I'm not in the classic health and fitness space anymore. I sold the yoga mm-hmm. center, you know, we did beautifully. I sold that company at the end of 2008 and it sort of moved more into the online space and writing and speaking and teaching. But fundamentally what I would, what I would say is question the assumptions in the fitness mm-hmm. world, I don't think there are enough people questioning the assumptions about how we, how we help people and how we do business. You know, there's mm-hmm. very little has changed in the business model in a lot of years. There are a couple of outliers like CrossFit or SoulCycle that are trying to do things differently and shaking them up. But most of it, you know, like people are just kind of like keeping on, keeping on. And 
You know, I'll go back to that number that we started with, which is that 80 to 85% of adults in the U.S., and I'm guessing it's probably similar in other Western countries, will not join or stay members of traditional health and fitness facilities. You got to ask yourself, and there's a, you know, a nearly 40% dropout rate per year, right? Mm. The vast majority of people never hit their stated goals. Mm-hmm. And even if they keep paying for months and months and months, like that 40% dropout rate, we know that actually people have stopped coming months before they stop paying. Oh, yeah. Right? It's like so, so it's actually much attendance. worse. Yeah, the attendance. I had a, someone who worked for one of the big fitness chains who told me that the attendance they, was about 30%. Like 70% of people paying came Don't come. once a week. Yeah. yeah. And so question the assumptions. You know, Just because mm-hmm. this is the way it's been in the industry – doesn't mean it's the way that you have to build your career or your business. Really focus on understanding the deeper drivers and the people that you seek to serve, figuring out how to deliver true outcomes beyond, you know, just finding, figuring out ways to, you know, turn them into long-term customers and delight them, like deliver delight, you know, solve their problems, give them genuine outcomes, deliver delight, and don't be bound by whatever the model is that everybody else is doing. You know, question the assumptions, question the structures, question because for the most part, what's being done in the industry isn't working. Mm-hmm. You know, it's generating enough profit for, you know, people to get by. But in terms of serving people on a level that it's capable of serving people and at the same time generating the revenue that it's possible to generate. It's not coming close on either one. I mean, interesting proof is, so do you guys have SoulCycle there? No. Okay, no. so it's an indoor cycle. just New York. Right. It's actually like in a bunch of cities mm. in the U.S. now, right? Okay. And so the company actually filed um, an S-1, which is like they filed documents to go public last year. And when they filed those documents, oh, wow. they had to reveal all of their financials. And if mm-hmm. you actually look at them, you deconstruct their financial statements – they're making generating an astonishing amount of revenue per unit, you know, by doing things differently. You know, you can't mm-hmm. buy packages, or if you do, there's really no discount. Mm. And people will line up you know, because they deliver something just so different. So mm-hmm. question what's come before you and see if you like and challenge yourself to rise up and create mm-hmm. on a different level. That's what I would say. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds like a great spot to end. <laughs> <laughs> sounds great. Thanks for having me on, brother. Yeah, you're welcome. Alrighty, guys. Thanks for listening. If you uh, really like our episode, you can uh, leave feedback and check out our show notes. Yeah, you can find the show notes to all our episodes at trainerstribe.com forward slash podcasts. Uh, and if you're feeling generous or you'd really like to let us know how you're feeling, you can go to iTunes and leave a really nice review for Kyle and myself. Yeah, or if you want to help us spread the word and get more trainers, you know, putting some of this awesome stuff into action and helping to improve our industry, uh, just email this onto someone else or forward it or tell them about the show. We'd really appreciate it. It's really helpful. I've been uh, Dale Sidebottom. I've been Kyle Wood. <laughs>